0: intensified. In John's prologue to his gospel, he sets up telling us who Jesus is by going back to that very first verse in Genesis, when God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is Jesus, who we worship, the creator of all things. Let us read from Genesis, ...from the Gospel of John, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men... He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. There's a reason why Christians started celebrating Christmas. Despite its name coming from Catholic mass, Christ mass, Christians have celebrated the birth of Christ since nearly the beginning of Christianity. We see it happening within the first couple hundred years that Christians started to celebrate Jesus' birth. It's the birth of Jesus that has always been the central reason why Christians celebrate Christmas. And I think in a world full of different sentimentalities, different feelings that are evoked this time of year, it is always a wise thing to remember why we worship, why we celebrate why it's a worthwhile thing to have a birthday celebration for Jesus. And it's not because of all the good feelings that come to us, as good as those are, or the family that we love, or even giving gifts. The reason why we celebrate Christmas is because something glorious happened. It was the fact that God became a man, that the second person of the Trinity took on human nature to accomplish our salvation. What we celebrate at Christ- Christmas time is our salvation, but also the glory of God that we witness in this. John's gospel starts off, his good news, starts off by really summarizing in these first 18 verses what Jesus' work was all about, who he was. If Paul's gospel from 1 Timothy 1.15 is that Jesus Christ came came into the world to save sinners, John's gospel is really not that far off from that. Because what he's describing here is that Jesus, that God, came into the world to save sinners. And there's two elements of that good news that John breaks down for us. In those first five verses, we see that John speaks about the light, about who he is. But in our text today, starting at verse 6 through verse 13... What we have is John's witness to that event, which is really the primary reason of what we're doing at Christmas time, or really what we should be doing, which is we should be joining in with the New Testament's proclamation that our salvation, the salvation of sinners, has been accomplished, it is done. And it happened 2,000 years ago. That's what we're about. And it kind of stems from this. If the first five verses are focused on who the light is and the light of the world being what produces salvation in the land of darkness, what we have here is the story, the testimony, in short, of how Jesus was giving light to everyone we kind of had three words that we'll see in our text that kind of break down this giving light to everyone we see the witness to the light we see a rejection of the light and we see a salvation that's by the light a witness to the light a rejection of the light and salvation by the light And this is where we get our shift in our text. Because we've been introduced to the one who was in the beginning with the word, or who was in the beginning with God and was God. And this light, all of a sudden, is shifting in focus away from that light. In verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. "...to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light." What we have in the gospel, and what we just even read to the call to worship, from Isaiah chapter 9, was that Jesus' coming was not a surprise that there had been prophecies since the very beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 that God was going to accomplish the salvation of sinners and he was going to do it by sending his man who would redeem. And that prophecy had been built upon throughout time all the way until Isaiah's time and past it. And what John was... John the Baptist was a witness to that light. It was as if God was sending a forerunner, someone who's to prepare the way for sinners to believe in the Messiah that Jesus was going to be sending. John's role was that of a witness. And whether you're looking at Matthew, Mark, or Luke, Their focus is on John's message, a message of repentance, turning from sin, talking about judgment, God's judgment coming upon a sinful world. But why was he preaching that message? What was his his purpose in it? Well, that's really the focus that we get in John's gospel. If we look at verse 29 of the same chapter, we see John's preaching. He's already confessed that he's not the Christ, that he's simply the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And he says in verse 29, when he finally sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world this is he of whom i said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me i myself did not know him but for this purpose i came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to israel John's role actually fits quite well with what our role is supposed to be. John was the official, sent-forward witness of God to bear testimony to who the Messiah was, to identify him and point him out to people. But that same role of being a witness to the light is the role that all Christians play. That's our part in this Christmas story. John chapter 20, verse 31. When John, not the Baptist, but John the Apostle who wrote this book, says why he wrote all the details of the book, he said that he could have written lots of things. Many different things, but these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. We have a lot of commonalities with John. We have the same purpose in our life of not being the primary light or the primary source of understanding but we simply point people to the only true light who can actually save people. We have the same message, one of turning away from sin and turning to God who can save us. And we also even have the same role and call to the same humility in that task. If we just pick up in John chapter 3, verse Verse, 20, verse 30, we see John's disciples all starting to wrestle with the fact that people are starting to follow Jesus and no longer John the Baptist. And he says, that starting in verse 28, he said, You yourselves bear witness to me that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. What is John saying? John's saying first and foremost that his purpose is to be a servant, is to bear witness to someone else. And the someone else that John is bearing witness to is not just anyone. What is he ground... Jesus' greaterness in the fact that he came before him. The fact that he came from somewhere. If the good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, where did he come from? He came as God from heaven. He was before John because he existed before John. You and I can't say that. He's bearing testimony to someone who's actually able to save us, who's actually able to save himself. And that word witness doesn't carry this, this came, it carries a different connotation today than it did probably in John's day. The word witness is the word that we get from martyr. What is a martyr? A martyr is someone who bears bears testimony of something. But today, because we saw the persecution that happened in the first three centuries and since then, for those who bear the name of Christ, who bear that testimony to an unbelieving world, that testimony comes with persecution. A martyr is someone who dies for the faith. It's not the meaning in this text, but that's what the meaning has come up with, because this is a dangerous calling. Those who bear witness, who have that calling, which is every believer who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, we should expect the same sort of rejection, the same sort of danger. You know, I became a pastor when I turned 30. And I made the joke that that means that I only have three years left to live. Because John the Baptist, right when he started his public ministry, died three years later. And so did Jesus. I really don't hope that happens. I really, I don't, I'm not asking for danger and not, not asking for persecution. But we should be living in such a way. We should be lights in the world, where if they wanted to stamp out the light of the gospel 2,000 years ago, whenever it appeared, and whoever it appeared in, if we don't receive the same response, that means that either we're not shining brightly enough, or we're trying to hide that light, or we're not trying to shine it, this is not a call to be confrontational. This is not a call to get, to seek out persecution. What it is a call is to be faithful. And that when we're faithful, if we experience rejection, to not be surprised by it. Luke chapter 10 verse 16 says, If they, first, if they rejected me, they're going to reject the ones that I sent. And that's exactly the same sort of pattern that we even get in this text. After being introduced to the light and to the witness of the light, we're given a surprising reality of rejection of the light. Verse 9 says that the true light, that's not John the Baptist, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light who enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. This is the great irony of redemptive history. The fact that we reject the God who created a good world, that we reject a good and loving God, and we want to have nothing to do with him, the one that we reject is the one who made the heavens and the earth. And this statement being made about Jesus is pretty significant. I'll let you in your own time, whether you look at First Corinthians chapter eight, verse six, or Hebrews chapter one, verse two, or Colossians chapter one, verse sixteen, and many other places. We see that the Father's not the only one who said to make the heavens and the earth, to be the creator of the universe. It's also the Lord Jesus Christ who said to be the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I'll just read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He's talking about idols here. And he says, Therefore, eating food offered to idols idols, we know that the idol has no real existence, in that, and he quotes the Old Testament here, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, as in so-called gods, so-called lords, yet... Verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul and John could not be clearer. There is one God And as soon as the New Testament starts describing that one God, it starts talking about the Father who made all things and for whom all things exist. And he uses and repeats the exact same language of the Son. And Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is also part of this Trinity. This is the person whom we reject. And the the amazing thing is, in verse 11, or verse 10, it says, Yet the world did not know him. And if it could get worse, to add insult to injury, we're told in verse 11, that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus did not just come into the world without any announcement, and looked for affirmation of people. God sent a witness to point people to Jesus, and he gave it to the people who had been prepared for thousands of years for that arrival. Romans chapter 9, listen to what it says about the Israelites whom Paul is mourning over. He says, I could wish myself, in verse 3 of Romans chapter 9, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's talking about the fact that the vast majority of Jews have not embraced Jesus. And he tells them about these Israelites. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption of, and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Even here, in Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, we see who the Israelites were. They had been prepared. If anyone was going to recognize Jesus when he came into the world, it would have been them. It wouldn't have been Romans, who would be confused about half-gods and Hercules and all those other different mythological stories. It would be the Jews who know that there is only one God. They should have recognized him. Why didn't they? Why don't some people in this room recognize Jesus when they hear about him? It's the same fundamental problem in both situations. The same problem, whether it was the Jews in Jesus' day who literally saw Jesus in his glory, saw him work miracles, saw him rise from the dead... The same fundamental problem is at work with the people we witness to. We have the same message. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 16. We're given an explanation. John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the New Testament, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send in his, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. And here is our explanation in verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than darkness. We see this dynamic playing out all the time. Jesus came and he gave and he is the source of light to the whole world. When Jesus was walking in the world, the light of his character, the light of his personage, personage I don't know if that's a word, the light of his miracles shined throughout the world on absolutely everyone. Everyone was without excuse. Everyone, whether you have natural revelation and you can see God's design and testimony in nature, Romans chapter 1 tells us, or if you were there to see Jesus himself, either way, we have the light of God's knowledge piercing our darkness. The reason why people don't believe is not because Jesus is not bright enough. It's because People loved the darkness, hated the light, and didn't want their sinful deeds exposed. That's what we're told in verse 19 and 20. We have the same message as John the Baptist. A message of repentance and faith in the one that the Messiah would send. That message of repentance is the reason why the darkness hates the light. The light, when it's shown into the world, and when it shines into the world, shows that its deeds are evil. The worst thing that you can do to a sinner is tell them that they're wrong that their lifestyle, God does not approve of. That the very things that they think are core to their identity, their core loves are what God determines and has called evil. That's the most offensive thing that you can tell to a sinner. And if you haven't experienced the same sort of conflict that Jesus and John the Baptist suffered, It could be because that aspect of the message is missing from our testimony, from our witness. Did you notice what Jesus came as he's shining the light in the world? Jesus did not have to proclaim a message of condemnation. Why? Not because the world did not need saving. Not because the world is not under God's wrath. Because it was already under God's wrath. John the Baptist's words in verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus came in the world to save sinners on the presupposition that sinners are the ones who are in need of saving. And what they need saving from is from God's justice. We did not need to be condemned by Jesus because we were already condemned by our actions. We already have God's law either written in the Ten Commandments for the Jews or written within our own heart And what keeps so many people from coming to Jesus, what keeps them at arm's length, what keeps them rejecting the good news is because they love their sin more than they love the Savior God has sent. Because they don't they hate God. Why? Not for some arbitrary reason, but because God in his goodness, when we look at God and behold his glory, when we look how at his perfections, we see a good God. We see a holy God. And that becomes a problem to us because what we see in God's character, in his goodness, is that we are not good. It condemns us. It convicts us. It calls us to turn from the things we love. No one likes to be exposed for who they are. And if God was to portray our thoughts onto a screen, we would all feel the shame of that expose. Wouldn't we? No one likes that. That's not pleasant. But the good news is not that our sins are exposed. The good news is that Jesus came to save sinners. The thing is, is when we read the Bible, we should feel guilty. And that feeling of guilt should not be suppressed and explained away. That feeling of guilt should rather be answered. And it is answered in Jesus Christ. And that's why he came into the world. He came into the world with a witness to the light, despite the rejection of the light. But the key here is salvation by the light. Why did God come into the world? He came in the world to enlighten everyone. He gave the witness so that all, verse 7, might believe through him. The instrumentality of John. And to all who did receive him, and in case you're wondering what that receiving looks like, that receiving is termed in the next phrase in verse 12, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. This is the glorious good news for sinners. How did Jesus save sinners? What did his coming accomplish? We're going to finish this tonight if you come to the evening service. To our Christmas Eve service, of looking at the Holy Spirit's role in all of this. Because we see that the Father sent the Son. The Son accomplished our redemption and the Holy Spirit applies it to believers. But here, the focus in verse 12 is Jesus' role. That all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. Matthew chapter 3. When John the Baptist is speaking with the Pharisees. Verse 6 tells us of Matthew chapter 3 that he was baptizing in the Jordan River. And they were confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? No wonder why he was persecuted. He said, he commanded them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. How do you become a child of God? What gives you the right and the privilege of knowing and being assured that you have salvation in the light who came? And that's an important question because the light, that the mere fact that it came into the world, we just saw the light was rejected. It doesn't automatically bring salvation to everyone. Jesus, by his dying and rising from the dead, did not automatically apply to every sinner. How do we get what happened to apply to us? Well, to the Pharisees, they need to know it doesn't happen by mere birthright. You can't be born into the right family, you can't have the right genetics. You cannot have salvation and the right to be a child of God by merely being born into a Christian family or even being baptized and belonging to the covenant community, the visible church. It didn't work in the Old Testament, and it doesn't work in the New Testament either. What causes us to be children of God is the instruction found in In Romans chapter 10 Romans chapter 10 says the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him For, in quoting the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are we saved by the light? By calling on the name of Jesus to save us. You see, when we call the world to repentance, when we tell them about their sin, if our message was about condemning the world, that's all we would do. We'd just tell people to turn or burn. We would have a message that God is has wrathful upon their sins, and that He will judge them from all their acts, and that would be it. The problem with that message is it's only half of the reality. Is every believer called to turn from their sin? Yes, but they are more importantly to turn from their sin and turn to someone to save them. Or as our confession says, this is uh, the larger catechism, that repentance is... And repentance under life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby, listen, out of sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. To such as are penitent. Did you see that? There's all three things there. That our turning is not just out of a sense of danger, even though that sense of danger is real. Because the condemnation is already there if you are a sinner, which Romans 3 says applies to all of us. But more than that, we get a sense of the odiousness of our sense, of our sins. The grief of our sins. We we turn from our sins only because we stop loving our sins more than the Savior. Something has to happen in our heart where we love the light rather than the darkness. Where we don't mind being exposed for what we are before the living God because we know that the living God loves us and gave himself for us we turn to the savior not just from our sins because we know that in god we have a merciful high priest isaiah 55:6 and tells us 6 and 7 tells us to turn while the day is still today if you're alive and hearing this today's the chance for you to turn and we turn because we know God will be merciful. We know God will save. Four, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And what we know in the New Testament is where that pardon is found. And it's found in Jesus Christ, accomplished by his death and his resurrection. When we think about Christmas, there's lots of reason why it brings sadness this time of year. for, for a lot of people, the thought about Christianity and the message of the gospel, they only know the guilt they only know the wrath of God. They only know his judgment. What we have in Christmas time, or really in the incarnation, is the evidence of God's love for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And what we're called to do as sinners is not to merely dwell on our guilt but to agree with God that our sins are actually sins. And to this end, we cannot just gloss over people's sins. The call of the gospel is not helped when we tell people that homosexuality is not actually a sin, that divorce is not wrong, you name it, whatever it is whatever your pet sin that you want to nurture, as long as we have that message, we're not helping people to run to the Savior. We're telling them that they can love their sin and love God. But the reality is is that no one can serve two masters. That we're all called, rather, to think about our sin the same way God does. We are called to hate our sin and love God. And the motivating principle for sinners to love God is, yes, because he deserves it, because he is holy, but because also he has shown his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, he sent God into the world. He became a man, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let us pray. Dear, gracious God and heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful for the Incarnation. We're so thankful that the Father sent the Son, that the Son was born by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that He lived a perfect life, that He died not only lived the life that we should have lived, but died the death that we should have died so that all who believe in him would have eternal life. Lord, would you give all the sinners in this room a humble heart, a heart that bends the knee to King Jesus a heart that recognizes our sin for what they are, and to endure the shame of having it exposed, of having it condemned by the living God, of having it exposed so that we might have it eradicated by the blood of Christ, to expose our sin so that we might have it washed in Jesus' blood,